Charles Murray. Well, I'm inspired by, uh, by this to actually be optimistic for once. Um, to, to propose a scenario that is not implausible. Uh, first point in the scenario is that next year the congressional nominees that the Republicans put forward will overwhelmingly be people who are acceptable to the Tea Party, which is to say that they will be devotees of, of the Constitution and constitutional limits and the rest of it. That's a fair statement about how uh, party politics work, that in an awful lot of districts in this country which will elect Republican congressmen, uh, there is a lot of strength in the Tea Party. So you will have those candidates out there. That's, that's almost 100 percent certain. Next, let's assume we still have 9 percent unemployment or something close to that. Uh, the economists I read uh, across the political spectrum actually say that's pretty much in the cards, too, that it's extremely unlikely that even given better policies, you're going to do much about the unemployment situation by then. That's also very high probability. Third is more speculative, but that is the continuing uh, carterization of uh, Barack Obama in the public mind. Uh, once uh, Jimmy Carter uh, flailed away at that rabbit in the water unsuccessfully, uh, he was toast. And um, Barack Obama is increasingly no longer what he used to be, which was a very attractive person as, as a persona, to, even to people like me uh, who didn't like his politics. But there was a lot to like about Barack Obama, and that's all been fading so that that what was once uh, soaring rhetoric is now just getting whiny and self-indulgent and narcissistic. And let's, let's say that that continues to spread, as I think is plausible, not 100 percent, but plausible. Take all of that. Possibility is that next year there will be a huge Republican majority in both houses that will be dominated by dedicated constitutional conservatives. Now, here we come to the problem, which is a candidate for president uh, on the part of the Republicans. But even suppose it's Mitt Romney who gets elected, who I think has no more dedication uh, to constitutional limited government than Richard Nixon did or George, the first George Bush or, unfortunately, the second George Bush. Uh, let's suppose that's the case. Nonetheless, he's going to have a Congress that's ready to go. And uh, the possibility for, um, uh, for major changes there. In other words, I'm saying it is not just pipe dreaming, but actual, actually politically plausible that after the next election, there will be an energized United States, energized in all the right directions in terms of the people in this room, and that we could see landmark change and perhaps the same kind of turnaround um, that we saw between the Carter and Reagan administrations. Having said that, I will now retreat into my habitual pessimism and, and be silent. But there's a moment, there's, there's, there's some good possibilities out there. Yeah. Roger. Uh, just just uh, a quip, really. Uh, Daniel quoted the famous thing about America usually does the right thing in the end once it's exhausted. All the other possibilities, it reminds me of uh, a line I read in Jeffrey Madden's notebook that uh, an Englishman's mind works best when it's almost too late. <laughs> Are there who, any questions on the floor? Or, yeah, over there. Thank you, Daniel. Really terrific talk uh, to wrap us up here. Um, 
I'm glad you mentioned the Anglo-American relationship because it made me think of the speech that Winston Churchill had given when he was, I think he was Lord of the Admiralty in 1918. He was celebrating July 4th, American independence. Of course, there are about a million American soldiers coming across the Atlantic to help end that, uh, that First World War. And he, he referred to the Declaration as a third great title deed in, in human freedom. And including in there the Magna Carta, the English Bill of Rights, and the Declaration. I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on what that Anglo-American tradition, the various distinctives, the liberal uh, uh, democratic tradition, what can be uh, brought back and emphasized, uh, and the importance of that relationship at, at this particular cultural uh, historical moment. What do you think in that Anglo-American relationship is really important to emphasize now on, on you know, both sides of the Atlantic, uh, whether we do that very consciously, deliberately, together or not? But what's, what needs to be brought back into the fore? Mm. Wow. Thank you for that, Joe. Uh, I mean, you are actually better qualified than I am to, uh, to answer your own question, being a very distinguished Locke scholar, uh, as you are. And, and uh, I do think that that sort of royal procession of, of great political thinkers uh, beginning already uh, in, the, um, in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, people like Hobbes and Milton's Areopagitica and uh, so on, uh, you know, occasionally other non-Brits uh, get a look in, you know, Spinoza is probably in there. Uh, but, but anyway, Locke and, uh, and Hume and, and Burke um, you know, these, uh, these great thinkers, uh, which are as much part of the American heritage as they are the English heritage, uh, if not more so, um, uh, certainly better remembered here than they are in England. Adam Smith, of course, again, crucial. Um, the whole Scottish Enlightenment, in fact, uh, and, uh, and processing on through the 19th century um, uh, up until we come to this sort of terrible period of of the world wars when um, everything goes off the rails and people like John Maynard Keynes take over our intellectual tradition. Um, and we, we need to import uh, people like Hayek from, from the, uh, the countries that have fallen under dictatorship uh, to teach us again uh, how to protect our freedom. I mean, I, I think that Americans... Uh, we heard last night from, from President Klaus... Uh, how it's only when you've lost your freedom that you really value it. And you notice how it is being gradually worn away and, uh, you know, death by a thousand cuts, by, you know, uh, these invisible, imperceptible erosions of our liberty. Uh, I think that is, in a way, uh, I mean, Hayek, of course, talked about this, and Milton Friedman and many others since, um, uh, what on both sides of the Atlantic we, know, we need to be aware of. And I think the Tea Party has made uh, a tremendous impact over here. But the bad news is that in Europe in general, and in Britain in particular, uh, the Tea Party is still seen as on the lunatic fringe of American politics. Uh, we simply, our media simply does not explain what it's really about. Uh, you know, if you asked even most intelligent, educated Brits about the Tea Party, they would immediately start talking about creationism and that kind of thing. They don't understand the constitutional ideas that underlie it, uh, which are much more important than, uh, you know, 
particular theological doctrines and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and the idea of limited government, which, as I say, is as much part of, uh, of our heritage as it is of yours. Um, that is certainly fundamental. But as well as the, the idea of limited government, uh, I think we need to reassert sovereignty. Uh, John Fonte, I know, has a book coming out about this, which uh, I'm sure will be well worth reading. And uh, sovereignty is an idea that has been unfashionable for a very long time, especially in Europe, where uh, we're endlessly told that it's the only point of it is to pool it, you know, basically give it away. And uh, uh, ironically, it, it's, a, it's, it's an English woman. Uh, uh, Baroness Ashton, who's been given the job of setting up this European diplomatic service and uh, basically undermining the, the residual, uh, the remnants of, uh, of, of, of the trappings of, of, of our sovereignty uh, in Brussels. Um, now, whether, of course, this European diplomatic service will ever actually serve a useful function, uh, nobody seems to have even asked that question. But... Um, uh, but it's costing a huge amount of money at a time when Europe, you know, is completely bankrupt. Um, but, I mean, I mention that only because uh, I think ideas about sovereignty and uh, defense of one's, one's legitimate interests, uh, but also the promotion abroad of what George W. Bush called the, the, his democracy agenda, uh, but in a much more uh, rational and uh, calculated way than... Uh, we've seen in the last few years. Um, I think, uh, um, you know, United States uh, under a new president uh, and Britain under a genuinely conservative government, unlike the, uh, the pantomime horse that we have at the moment, <laughs> um, uh, we could really, as, as, um, as Charles said, um, you know, we're ready to go. Um, I think there is a huge mass of people out there who would vote for such uh, policies, um, and particularly when the alternatives have disintegrated. I mean, you know, we, we've, many people have commented today about uh, the impact of what's happening on the European continent, um, and uh, that's still got to play out, but um, as, as President Klaus reminded us last night, uh, uh, we're witnessing the end of a sort of post-war um, dream that has turned into a nightmare. Um, and the European elites simply don't know what to do about this. But at least we in the, in the Anglophone countries, uh, we have a, uh, a much more solid uh, and much older tradition to fall back on of democracy and liberty uh, and the rule of law. Uh, remember that most European countries were dictatorships of one kind or another within living memory, um, within, a, within a generation or so in some cases. Uh, you know, think of Greece or Spain or Portugal, um, not to mention the East European countries, uh, Central European countries, perhaps I should say, with, in deference to President Klaus. He doesn't like being thought of as an East European. Um, uh, actually, the Czechs are among the few who did have a pre-war uh, democracy, um, but, uh, but very few others. And uh, not to mention the French, who you know, have had so many republics and empires and <laughs> monarchies, and not to mention Vichy and you know, the Commune. Um, uh, they, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm just saying that I think, I think we are on the verge of a new golden age of the English-speaking peoples. But in the UK... <laughs> in the UK, no-one's offering the Conservative alternative. Who's the, who's the UK leadership which is going to offer the 
Well, they better read Standpoint then, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got Douglas Murray and then Jeremy Black. Douglas. Jeremy. Oh, all right. Um, well, I sympathised with a lot about what Daniel said, but uh, my tradition of conservatism is a different one. I go and look back to a, a sort of more cautious prudentialist, and in fact, in some respects, I'm not, I've not bought into the liberal internationalism which Daniel has. And let me start off with an easy historical gift. Um, you, the West should have stopped the communists taking over in, 19, in 1946-47. Well, Marshall went to China he came to the conclusion that it would take a vast commitment of American ground troops plus the, new, uh, the use of nuclear weapons and that even so, success was dubious. So I think in a way what I'm saying, just starting on that point, is that if you are looking at one's own country, one can envisage whatever one wants and I personally would like to see a far more conservative, prudential, financially cautious and morally sort of vigorous, uh, both Britain and the United States. What you can't assume is that the rest of the world will necessarily heed however one envisages one's own power. And I thought Alexander Evans's point this morning was very good about that, that as it were, strength or decline, and whatever one means by that, and we can debate them variously, are in part a matter of what happens in one's own country, but in part they're a question of how others respond to us. And I think we would be naive if we did not note the extent to which all major states, that includes ones of different ideologies to us, for example the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, have found it much harder implementing their policy agendas in other countries in the last 50 years than was the case 100 years ago. And that's because there has been a process of change in the world in which societies are different to what they were 100 years ago. Now, what am I driving at at this? What I'm driving at is that there is one thing to urge a series of policy changes in one's own country, and I'm all in favour of that. What I think one has to be very careful is that one doesn't link that to an international agenda in which one tries to change the rest of the world to conform to our image of our own power. Now, by all means, be tough. By all means, expect other people to heed one's interests. That's sensible. There's no point, and I agree entirely with all the sentiments expressed by my colleagues here about the weaknesses of international agencies. I agree entirely with that. There is a lot of silly, liberal, woolly thinkingness. But conservatives can go in for just as much silly, woolly thinkingness as liberals can. And assuming that just because one presses a button, in other words, it endorses a view, sends troops to a certain area, engages in military activity, it is necessarily going to have the outcome we want that is equally as naive as the naivety of liberal internationalists and liberal um, you know, universalists through the UN. You don't want to hear that, but I think it's important to try and keep older traditions of conservatism alive at the same time as the kind of liberal internationalism that's crept into the conservative tradition over the last 50 years. May I just respond? How, how in that case, um, Jeremy, I mean, I, I, I wasn't necessarily advocating sending troops. In fact, you may remember in my paper, I had a bit of a go at gunboat diplomacy. Um, 
I wasn't necessarily suggesting that we should be sending troops here, there, and everywhere. Somebody earlier on was talking about George Bush and Africa, and you know the idea of a sort of American empire in Africa. Um, nothing could be further from what uh, uh, <coughs> even you know, a neoconservative would uh, would advocate. Um, but there are many, many things we can do yes. which don't involve troops. I mean, would would we have won the Cold War? without uh, SDI and uh, the military build-up, together with the uh, diplomatic and moral offensive uh, that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher launched, uh, standing up for their values, speaking truth to power. Um, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Um, you know, which, which, by the way, I'm sure most people in this room know this, but, uh, but Reagan did that in the teeth of uh, State Department opposition, you know, the so-called realists thought it was mad to uh, use that kind of rhetoric uh, and kept striking it out of his speech and he kept putting it back in. Um, and, um, uh, and indeed, right up until uh, the day the wall fell down, uh, or rather was torn down, um, uh, most people in the West wouldn't believe that it was even possible. Um, so sometimes you do have to think yes. the unthinkable. Sometimes you do have to... Uh, Go out of your way to make things happen. And you can often do this without shedding a drop of blood. Um, supporting dissidents uh, in the Soviet Union was crucial as well. Um, you know, the, the Jackson Amendment in Congress, which uh, allowed, uh, which, which linked allowing uh, the Soviet Jews to leave uh, to trade, uh, was an enormous inspiration for opponents of the regime uh, in, in Russia. You know, as people like Sharansky have testified. Um, Sakharov, uh, again, you know, Elena Bonner, who died a few weeks ago, and I paid tribute to her in an article. Um, I remember meeting her and interviewing her at the time. Um, as an extraordinary woman. Um, uh, how different Russian history would have been if, if uh, Sakharov had not died just the moment of, of triumph in December 1989. Uh, and if, uh, if, if Yelena Bonner uh, had not been, uh, because she was Jewish, uh, regarded as, you know, not an acceptable successor for him by, by the deeply anti-Semitic political culture in, in Russia. Uh, she was, of course, a, a brilliant woman in her own right and would have been a very worthy successor. But, uh, but instead we ended up with Yeltsin and that led to Putin and we know where all that went. But I'm... I'm, I'm I mean, I cite the example of Russia only as an example of where a little bit of effort yep. at the right moment could have yielded enormously valuable results. I mean, we can argue about what happened in China in the 19, late 1940s, whether it would have paid off for the West to make some kind of investment at that time. Of course, we were war-weary at the end of, mm. of the war. The troops wanted to come home. Uh, nobody wanted to launch an anti-communist uh, mm. offensive. Uh, there were fears about provoking the Russians, um, and so on. Uh, so with hindsight, yes, perhaps one can say it, nothing we could have done would have prevented Mao's triumph. But, I mean, I mentioned earlier that terrible statistic about the one-child family, but, I mean, even worse, of course, is the, is the, uh, the, the, the terrifying numbers of people who died in famines and the Cultural Revolution and so on. I mean, the, the sheer destruction of human life that that regime has been responsible for, and which to this day it has never acknowledged. Never. Not a single thing. And 
you know, anything we could have done to have prevented that uh, would, have, uh, would have been worth doing. Well, I agree with you about the moral difference. I think... Um, I don't think if you have conservative values that you can be a cultural relativist. I agree with you. There are, clear, there are clear moral values in that one. Uh, but what I'm talking about, and in a way I'm taking up the theme of both Charles and Andrew, which is it, where they were talking about in the domestic context, actually saying to people, including people who are middle class and conservatives, that entitlements have to be cut back, or whatever people conceive of as entitlements, have to be cut back, that there needs to be a process of, if you like, if you want to use a term, a kind of rearmament in the sense of a strengthening of the sinew. But what I'm saying is that part of that, on the international dimension, is also accepting what we can do and what we can't do. Now, I think your comments about the Cold War are entirely reasonable, but it's also worth bearing in mind, here we are sitting in a conservative American context. In 1956, Eisenhower was absolutely determined there should be no rollback in Europe because he thought that rollback might lead to war. It wasn't a question of Eisenhower thinking that in some way the communists were good people or that it was a great thing that was going on in Hungary or in Poland where people were being shot down in the streets by, you know, by um, communist killers uh, with the authority of the state. It's partly that sometimes one actually has to understand there are limits to what we can achieve. And it's always very interesting and easy when we talk to each other to build ourselves up and to be convinced that we can make the world as we want it. Well, I wish we could, but we also need our fallback strategies. We also need, you know, just as we're having to think about how do we conceive of public finances in a context where a whole host of factors, stupid left-wing policies, social welfareism, greater, demography, greater demography, economic failure of economic growth rates to be as we would like them to be, just as we're thinking about how we have to adapt to that. So in a way, I'm agreeing with Daniel, but putting a different gloss on it because I'm not an optimist. He's a nicer person than me. I'm not an optimist. I'm not an optimist like him. I think we need to actually, as conservatives, encourage a sense of prudence as well as a sense of optimism and hope. And I think one of the ways we can knock the left is by saying they have completely abandoned any sense of prudence. They have naive hopes, and, you know, if you want to have their hopes, fine. They have naive hopes, but they also have thrown away any sense of prudence. I don't think we help ourselves if sometimes, not always, and I'm not in suggesting that anybody here is doing that, but there's always a danger we go down that line, that if we throw away our own sense of prudence. Uh, Douglas Murray. Thank you. Um, th thank you, Daniel. That was terrific. And I not just saying that because you're my editor. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I, I just wanted to pick up on, on Spengler because it seems to be one thing that, that's worth adding, perhaps, is that one of the reasons why people don't read Spengler after the age of about 18, as Roger said, is also because he was refuted, um, and refuted apart from the else by T.S. Eliot, who managed to present a very different uh, view uh, not least showing that cultural renewal and religious renewal indeed can come about not by, uh, as Strauss might have had, a, a 13th hour rescue, but rather that the culture and that religion remains what Hegel calls an unexhausted force and one therefore which the culture can tap into at any point uh, to revive itself. 
In other words, that the culture has within it its own source of renewal, and it just needs to be accessed. And therefore, the, the, the thing you mentioned, the, the, terrifi the terrifying thing of cultural amnesia in our society is, of course, a symptom of decline, but that if it's addressed, we have all of the tools at our disposal to reinvigorate uh, that culture and that renewal. And that's why Habermas, who you mentioned a couple of times, Habermas's contributions to this discussion are so important because the discussion is centrally about religion and its place in, in our culture. Uh, and the debate around that between the secular and the religious, if, it, if they can agree on that point, uh, then you have uh, Eliot's vision, as it were, coming about again. <coughs> and Spengler being refuted again. John O'Sullivan. Uh, just very quickly, if I could go back to the debate between Jeremy and, um, uh, and Daniel. It's really a question, a, a, a point addressed to two points addressed to Jeremy, but Daniel may want to come in. And that, the first is, I, I think I agree with him entirely that we don't want to develop foreign policy doctrines. And the neoconservatives, I think, at least came close to doing this. Doctrines that make us the enemy of every non-democratic government in the world at least in principle. It, it just doesn't seem sensible. And the second is that, um, uh, although, by the way, I have a professional interest in spreading democratic ideas because my job is uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, is precisely to, to arouse people on these, cons on these matters. The second is this. Um, a conservative foreign policy and ideology, canning, is generally regarded as a great conservative uh, foreign um, foreign minister and a, and a conservative prime minister. And he undoubtedly thought that ideologies, ideas, um, passions were something that should be at least used by British, British foreign policy. He thought the great international trends of opinion he could make, um, by making Britain the friends of those tendencies, he could make those tendencies uh, the friends of Britain. And if they, they came to power, you know, I'm thinking of liberal constitutional ideas and movements, then, then Britain would be the beneficiary. And, and during his period of uh, being the stewardship of foreign policy as opposed to Cassare, I think, he did a great deal in this direction, not all of it successful, but all of it interesting. And um, considering that it was an interesting thing that he died, a, a very beloved figure, as a matter of fact, I just wonder whether or not um, uh, uh, Jeremy feels that uh, the, there is a, a, an important role um, in foreign policy for... Uh, in a sense, ideological promotion of our ideas. And, and um, I, in the Cold War, uh, certainly Reagan managed to, to do so. And today, I wonder how we would handle this question in relation to the Middle East. Because whether or not we like what's going on, something important is going on, and how are we to benefit from it? Do you want to respond to that? Daniel? Well, it seems to me that the great, one of the great, perhaps the great uh, cause of our time is ironically the same one that we had or should have had in the 30s and 40s. Um, Israel is the front line of the West. Um, it's nothing more nor less than that. Um, we have a, a profound, I'm tempted to say, sacred duty uh, to the Jewish people uh, to prevent a second Holocaust. And that is precisely what powerful forces in the Middle East are preparing before our very eyes, um, even more openly so uh, than the Nazis did. Um, and yet, what has been the West's response? The West's response has very largely been to push Israel into a corner, to 
bully it, to uh, deprive it of uh, legitimacy, and to um, encourage its enemies, actually, to, uh, to uh, blackmail us even further. Um, so I would hope that any of the likely uh, Republican candidates uh, next year uh, will make that point very forcefully. Um, President Obama's uh, foreign policy has been based on the idea of engagement. Now, once upon a time, engagement actually was a, a, another word for a battle. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's come under him to be a euphemism for appeasement. Uh, and we've seen how disastrous this has been already in, uh, around the world, I would say, but certainly and particularly in the Middle East, uh, where one of our most important allies uh, during the Cold War, Turkey, uh, has been seemingly lost completely uh, to, to the other side and is now behaving as though it was a sort of neo-Ottoman uh, great power strutting around um, and threatening Israel. Uh, we've seen Egypt turn from being uh, admittedly an unattractive but nonetheless loyal ally into an unknown quantity which appears to be making common cause with terrorists and uh, rogue states. Uh, and we've seen Iran um, go from being a, a somewhat weak uh, state um, where uh, two years ago Came very the regime came very close to collapse. Um, but, you see, this is, this is where I think Jeremy and I do disagree, because I think um, the, the, the prudence which you refer to was exactly the idea that was animating uh, Obama's refusal to offer even verbal support uh, to the, um, uh, the protesters in, in Tehran two years ago, as a result of which they were brutally suppressed. Now, we don't know, that might have happened anyway, but I think there was a lot that the West could have done to help them, both overtly and covertly, uh, which we would have done uh, in better times. Um, and the result, once again, is that uh, this extremely dangerous and unpredictable regime mm. uh, has consolidated itself and is now once again threatening uh, Israel uh, ever more arrogantly heard this yet again this week here in New York. Um, so uh, I, I don't think you have to be, uh, I mean, I know, John, you know, you're not a, you don't con count yourself a neoconservative, but it seems to me that this is a time when uh, realists, realist conservatives and neoconservatives and any other kind of conservatives uh, need to pull together. Um, and uh, we don't actually have to look very far to find the common enemies um, uh, which we had in the Cold War, which did so much, of course, to, to unify the, the conservative movement in those days, uh, and indeed the, the Cold War liberals, who were extremely important. Um, and I think magazines like uh, The New Criterion and Standpoint uh, can do a great deal, actually, to bring together these disparate strands of thought uh, and the, the more decent elements uh, on the liberal side, too, uh, to, to make common cause. And I, you know, I, I take the point that conservatives can be just as foolish in foreign policy as, um, as liberals can. That's certainly true. Uh, but if it means anything to be conservative, then it means uh, that we, uh, we follow our, our, our interests and our uh, 
we, we, we make policy with our heads, not just with our hearts. Um, but the hearts have to be there too. Yes. And yes. Uh, I, I do think that central insight after 9-11, that uh, on the whole, democracies don't fight wars with each other, uh, whereas um, non-democracies do, uh, we mustn't lose sight of that. And, um, you know, the, 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 the Bush doctrine had some success. It was not followed through, uh, but it did initially have quite a lot of success. And um, uh, I don't think we should entirely abandon that. Yeah. Uh, next, we've got Andrew McCarthy, then Alexander Evan. Andrew. Uh, I, I want to try to meld the, uh, the impulse to to prudence and both uh, both to prudence and, and freedom promotion. Um, I think a couple of lessons we've drawn are, number one, a, gr a great power may be in control of what it does. It is in control of what it does, but it's not necessarily in control of how it's perceived. Uh, and in intelligence remains important uh, even if you're ends are, uh, are noble. We can't assume that the way that we're going to be perceived and, our, and the intentions that we have in uh, a project like democratizing the Middle East are going to be the way that we're perceived in the places where we have to operate. Um, a, a more concrete example of this, I um, often point out that the leading jurisprudent of the Muslim Brotherhood, Muhammad uh, Sheikh uh, Yusuf Karadawi um, condemned the 9-11 attacks and issued a fatwa uh, calling for the killing of American soldiers in Iraq. Uh, this seems incoherent to us, but I think it's incoherent because immediately after the 9-11 attacks, any consideration of Islamic doctrine was, was taken off the table uh, not only in polite conversation, but I think also in the State Department. But if we understood how they thought, um, it would be easily understood. The United States is a non-Muslim country where, frankly, the, the, uh, the Brotherhood and its uh, satellites have a pretty good thing going in terms of fundraising uh, and spreading their agenda by using democratic means. Uh, and therefore, an attack here was counterproductive. On the other hand, under the mainstream interpretation, this is not the Al-Qaeda interpretation, the mainstream interpretation of Islam, uh, a Western military force operating inside a Muslim country, even if it thinks it's doing humanitarian work, even if it thinks it's doing good, uh, under Sharia, if they are operating inside a Muslim country to plant Western ideas and Western institutions, they have to be attacked until they are driven out. Now, that seems to me to be a fairly important thing to know uh, before you decide to try to turn uh, Kandahar into Kansas. Uh, that's, that's not to say that we shouldn't be promoting our, our values and our principles and trying to nudge things uh, in that direction, uh, but it also would indicate to me that it's the sort of thing you would want to know in terms of how you're going to be perceived because that, that greatly impacts how successful you can expect to be. The other thing is when we promote our principles, I think we have to recognize that our enemies who have no interest in helping us promote our principles will use our principles against us where they can exploit them. 
And this, I think, goes to, to Daniel's point about the, the second Holocaust. I think the second Holocaust is, is greatly to be feared, uh, but I think the likelihood of the destruction of Israel will not be a physical attack. It will be democracy promotion. Um, the Already inside uh, Israel, you have a movement of the uh, Arab Israelis who, who uh, make up about, I guess, close to a fifth of the population now, and the Israeli left who are using a lot of the rhetoric that we've thrown around for the last 10 years about the importance of democracy uh, to try to campaign for the idea that Israel should not be a Jewish state and that they should be able democratically to vote that out of existence. Uh, if that happens, that's the end of Israel, and you don't have to do it by a holocaust. So it, it, along the lines of prudence, um, I think it is important to promote our values, but I think we have to do it with an understanding of what, of the way that we are perceived by the people we're trying to affect. And one final point in, in terms of how do you get this done? Uh, how do we how do we advance the agenda we want to advance without being overly provocative? I, I think, and I, I think I'm guilty of this myself as much as anyone else. One of the things that we've done wrong is indulge the class of civil, clash of civilizations rhetoric. That's not to say the clash of civilizations idea is wrong or that the construct is wrong. But I think that we've driven away a lot of what should have been our natural allies, especially in the civil rights community, by not making the debate more, more centered on the aspects of Sharia that are disturbing. So if instead of clash of civilizations we were talking about equality, equality between men and women, equality between Muslims and non-Muslims, uh, freedom of conscience, uh, apostasy in Islam is a capital offense. Um, our notions of privacy, homosexuality in Islam on a mainstream interpretation of Islam is a capital offense. I think if we were talking about these individual freedoms and making them, that is, the other side, um, defend their contrary vision, we would get a lot further with the convincibles than, than trying to render this as a clash of civilizations. Alexander Evans. I mean, I don't want to labor on, on, on this debate, although I think it's a fascinating one. I think there's always this tension between uh, pragmatism and principle in foreign policy, uh, and it's relevant in the context of America's role in the world now. I mean, if I may, as, as someone who's, who's, who's been a practitioner, more, more perhaps than a theorist, I mean, I, I, certainly you, you encounter... I mean, I, I worked in Afghanistan in 2002 trying to run the lawyer Jirga in, in parts of Pashtun, south of Afghanistan. And you know, when you're trying to bring uh, democracy to a group of Afghan villagers who haven't encountered it before, uh, the encounter can be uh, somewhat rude, let's say. Um, but, I, but I do think there's, there's a middle ground in some way between the debate, which I think is a really important debate between Jeremy and, and Daniel, which is that, that you can have, I think, a, a, a middle path, which is a little bit more ambitious than mere pragmatism, uh, but, but, is, but is prudent, uh, as Jeremy properly advises us to be. And, and which keeps, you know, in, in a sense, you, you, you maintain the principles, the values that your society believes in, uh, but you exercise prudence in terms of where you might seize an opportunity to intervene and how that intervention might play. 
Uh, and I think that's something to, to perhaps keep in mind, because I think sometimes this debate, particularly the way in which it's divided people on both the right and the left, uh, has tended to kind of box people in to say, either you do, you do nothing or, or you try to do everything. Uh, and I wonder if there's, a, there's another pathway. And, and part of that reflects, uh, you know, I think the way in which people think about America. I mean, I, I've always been struck. There was a piece of graffiti in, I think, Bangladesh a few years ago, which said, Yankee, go home, but take me with you. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, you know, you know, how do we seize on, on what is always a slightly, um, a, a slightly schizophrenic attitude towards the United States beyond these shores, which, which is half fascinated uh, and half repulsed, uh, and, and, and making sure that we, we find ways to use that to our advantage rather than use it to ways that disadvantage us. But I, I just had one quick, quick question, which is really about... There is another tradition that's fairly unique to the United States, which is one of apocalyptic literature and thinking uh, and, and art forms, uh, and not just thinking about recent Hollywood products, but a range of novels uh, that, you know, that, that are around as well. And I just wonder, you know, do, do you, do you or, or others think that there's a strange confluence at the moment between a general pessimism about the world and about uh, America's position in the world, which also links up with this sort of very sort of indigenous tradition of apocalyptic thinking, which is partly entertainment, uh, but also partly, you know, the, the, the secret undercurrent of pessimism that Americans can have uh, underneath their happy, sunny optimism. Um, well, I, I'm probably not the best person to answer that. I mean, there's a lot of very distinguished American cultural commentators on, on this, this platform. Um, uh, I, I, I do think that uh, you have a you have an interesting point there about the, uh, the apocalyptic tone of a lot of Hollywood and a lot of uh, literature. Um, but uh, I, I would warn against the, the sort of European, slightly condescending view of American culture, which, which tends to um, exaggerate uh, the wilder shores of religiosity over here and treat it as though it proved that Americans were not to be trusted. Um, I, 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 I have enormous respect for American religion. Um, uh, Charles Murray uh, mentioned earlier uh, Robert Putnam's new book, American Grace, uh, which is a magisterial work, uh, which I strongly recommend to anyone. And it is empirically very well soundly based. He's done a huge amount of research about American and the portrait that emerges is uh, a really almost unrelievedly positive one, even though, you know, he's not entering this with any partisan, uh, he's got no particular dog in the fight. Uh, he simply wanted to see what, what actually is the practical function of religion in, in America, uh, rather like Tocqueville. And, uh, and the conclusion he comes to is that it is, it is in almost every respect central to whatever is strong and, and, and vital uh, in American society and politics. Um, and that even goes, uh, he actually discusses the case of Michelle Bachman, uh, how she emerged as a politician uh, in her local church, you know, in a rather sort of uh, dramatic form, uh, you know, having sort of prayed for days with her husband to, for discernment as to whether or not she should go into politics and how her preacher then sort of endorsed her and this caused huge controversy of course because of the, 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 the great American tradition of separation of church and state uh, and so on but, 
Um, I mean, the point that Putnam is making is not that Bachmann is necessarily a good or a bad politician, but just that it's a sign of the vigor of American uh, public life uh, that, um, uh, that, that, that people who, who perhaps are not necessarily part of, of the elite, who are not part of this sort of uh, slightly decadent um, uh, college-educated um, sort of uh, Ivy League um, uh, uh, um, cast uh, that, um, that, that uh, Charles described um, can nonetheless break through and make a, make a very great difference and, and I, I think that's very true and uh, it does help to explain things like the Tea Party or uh, previous um, political upheavals um, but this is all a sign of life um, so yes, you know, there's plenty of apocalypse here but uh, but when it gets down to reality, uh, no one no one is more pragmatic than than America. You know, if somebody is uh, is can deliver the goods, uh, can show real leadership qualities, uh, then they're in. But the moment that uh, their personal beliefs get in the way, uh, they're out. Um, you know, it's a ruthless but extremely efficient political system that the founders bequeathed to us, and. Uh, I, 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 I continue to have tremendous faith in it. Thanks. Uh, yeah, over there. Thanks. The uh, Federalist Society will have a program next Monday on whether Sharia law should be introduced in the United States, and I'm going to try to recite Andy McCarthy's remarks word for word. <laughs> but what I'd like to say is the, my idea of democracy is, the, it is a synonym for freedom, and the United States really does not go in with armed force and impose democracy. What we find is that when people have the opportunity in this modern world, we're not in the Middle Ages, in our world, when they have the opportunity, they want freedom. It's manifested in their desire to vote. It's manifest in a lot of ways. Now, it can be suppressed. It can take, it, there can be messy man, uh, uh, problems about particular forms of government, but that desire for freedom is there. It's going to be there five years from now. It's going to be there really eternally. And that is what the United, that's what the United States has tried and obviously, and in, in, in many, in, sometimes not successfully, but that's really been our goal, is to allow the manifestation of that freedom. Thank, thanks for that. Thanks. I think that will bring the end of the, the discussion. Thanks for that excellent discussion. And we've got some comments by John O. Sullivan.